there a doctor in the house? Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. Doctor. 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 And doctor. It's time for Advanced Medicine Monday with Dr. Rashid Batar. I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. I'm a doctor, not a coal miner. The doctor is in. Just barely, but he's here. Dr. Rashid Batar, my buddy. My friend, my pal, and of course, it's it's time for more advanced medicine. Are you ready? I like the way you said I'm barely ready, but yes, I'm ready. <laughs> you know, we just got to throw it at each other. I, I was barely ready today, too. I've been, you know, boxing up a big truck to move out of here, and, you know, I'm just kind of like, my, my muscles are all engaged constantly now, so by the time I hit showtime, I'm like, I'm just ready to chill, man. So I'm chilling with my pal, Dr. Rasha Batar, Super Don, making it sound so good. We got McKenzie on the board. And you know what? The first thing I'm going to throw at you is that doctors are just plain not taking enough thyroids out of their patients. I mean, it's just like I don't know what we're going to do to get doctors to remove more thyroids from patients. That's just that's what that, this is the big problem of the day. Yeah, too much thyroid. It's, a, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an ongoing epidemic situation. God just didn't know what he was doing and put these thyroid glands in. Exactly. Uh, you know what? It's a shame. And, and doctors, they can, they can correct any mistake that God made. Of course, some people say, that's blasphemy. Well, of course, it's a joke, but the reality is the, the medical profession, last hour we covered Sayer G from Green Med Info, Dr. Bittar, and he said, has modern medicine become equivalent to a cult of human sacrifice? You know, when you look at the numbers of people that are dead from iatrogenic causes, you go, wait a second. They would not stomach one of those deaths if it were from a natural supplement or a homeopathic remedy. Yet it's institutionalized murder at this point. And I'm not saying doctors intend to do it. They're trained to. But at some point, they got to wake up and go, you know what? This is not good for the soul, much less the, my patients. Yeah, you know, that's that's such a, such a dichotomy in how everything is treated and like you said the uh, a natural a natural type of treatment they wouldn't have tolerated anything in fact not even a natural treatment let's just even look at the chelation you know one person dies from chelation uh when it was administered at six times the normal rate instead of over three hours it was done over half an hour um it was done at triple the dose so instead of three grams it was done at nine grams and a person dies from an inappropriate indication, I'm sorry, an inappropriate usage of the treatment. And the entire world is uh, put on notice of this terrible treatment. But Vioxx kills 55,000 people, and nobody does anything after having gone through all the phase one, phase two, phase three clinical trials and safety uh, parameters, et cetera, et cetera, gets vetted and has to kill 55,000 people before anybody says, oh, you know what, we need to look at this. Really embarrassing, honestly. And, you know, if, if we look at the thyroid, right, we, we know that there's a lot of thyroid dysfunction. What would we say are primary causes? Is it just one cause? It's kind of like the predictions for a pandemic. They say it's going to be one virus that does it. Yet I, I point out time and time again, when we covered the SARS virus, they said it was a coronavirus. And, in fact, it was toxic pollution around there. And then they call there's another one from SARS to MERS, M-E-R-S, Middle East. It's in the Middle East. And they say it's one virus. Now, 
the point is, if you follow the news and you follow World Health Organization pronouncements, doctors, PhDs in there, and they're actually looking at this and reporting on it, they don't get that kind of announcement in the mainstream press, but we follow that here. By the time the SARS epidemic had you know, come and gone, Dr. Plummer from the World Health Organization said they, they, they could find zero evidence for any presence of a coronavirus in any of their victims, when initially they said, oh, it's in 90% of everybody that's got it. So the idea that the medical profession is right, especially in initial pronouncements, as they come down the pike, then they, they forget to mention in the media, like, well, they were completely wrong about that, but we leave you with the impression that it was a virus, so next time we say virus, you'll run scared to the doctor for a shot. Yeah, and it's, a, it's this intimidation tactic that they use, um, and, of course, ridicule among some of these other tools that they use, embarrassment, um, not only embarrassing, trying to embarrass parents that they've done certain things uh, that may not have been for the best benefit for the children, but also embarrassing professionals by saying that they have um, associated with the wrong crowd or that they're preaching uh, something that is unscientific or, you know, whatever the case is. It's, it's all this propaganda technique that it you know, reminds you of the uh, things that Nazi Germany did when they were trying to convince the German population as to what their what the movement was was the correct movement. I think it was only like 10% of the German population was actually behind that initial, that um, impetus that caused World War One, World War Two. But it was enough to start to create people's, um, you know, uh, what's, the, what's the word, when, when you manipulate somebody's emotions and it's a manipulation, there's a certain term for it, where you manipulate somebody's emotions and they don't want to risk embarrassment, and so they mm-hmm. kind of go along with the herd mentality. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, well, they do propagandize you. We know that, and the term propaganda comes from that. But the idea here is, as you said, to collectivize something. Because then you make a group dynamic re- the reality. And as you said, people don't like to be ostracized by the group, right? They don't want to be outside of the group. You stick your head up like, are they going to chop that off? So they get you on peer pressure. And we talk about this all the time. Doctors are just as uh, subject to peer pressure and vulnerable to it as anybody on the school playground. Actually, I think the doctors are probably more susceptible to the peer pressure because that's why that I think the community elevates them, the, the medical education aspect and, and the trials and tribulations they have to go through to become doctors elevates them in their own minds, creates that ego or feeds that ego, and so they become actually more susceptible uh, to that uh, ostracization, they're more sensitive to it, so they don't want to be embarrassed, and they want to stay with the herd, because now there's that collectivism, you know, there's that protection in, in the herd. Indeed. So in in context of a thyroid removal, like we said, I mean, can they embarrass doctors to say, you know what, your thyroid removal rates are dropping, doctor, what's, what's going on here? You know, how are we going to prescribe Synthroid for the rest of the life? I mean, I know it's not an expensive drug anymore, it's generic, but but still, right? The idea is can you make them a customer for life? Remove their glands, and you've got them. Yeah, um, I think this is, a, this is probably part of the entire model, Robert, that they use, that, that the, the pharmaceutical companies have used to control the ultimate uh, destination, which is to make people dependent upon some type of chemical, you know, it's some type of chemical dependency. In fact, if you, if you kind of look at this, this, of course, I'm sure that I'm going to be attacked for this, but if you think about it for a second, 
What's the difference between alcohol dependency, cigarette dependency, or any other type of chemical dependency, i.e. a pharmaceutical? You know, there's, there's not, much not much difference with the exception that the, that the chemical dependency or the drug dependency is going to be more expensive of a habit than, say, the cigarettes or the alcohol. Sure. Uh, and depending on the drug and how you respond to it, it could be as deadly. Exactly. Exactly. So I, I don't know whether I don't know whether this was actually orchestrated, but when you start looking at how the Flexner report uh, dictated modern medicine, uh, I, I would not be surprised if this was all orchestrated from the get-go. Mm. Yeah, it certainly uh, stands to reason. At a certain point, you go. If the end result is this, whether they intended to or not, maybe inconsequential or really doesn't matter, but the fact of the matter is, what is the end result? Modern medicine uh, based on human sacrifice and sacrificing your thyroid. I mean, the brilliant uh, uh, guy in here says, people who have had their thyroid gland completely removed run the risk of developing hypoparathyroidism. Is it, would that surprise anybody? You remove your thyroid and you're going to have under-functioning glands that don't exist or the parathyroid how is it going to respond i mean i don't know what to make of the what appears to be obvious what i would think well i mean obviously parathyroid parathyroid disease is an important thing to make sure we don't we don't have but removing the thyroid uh is inherently or removing any organ system inherently is a problem because you're you're making the assumption that the removal of something is going to balance out something else, and that it's just not how it works. It's not how it works. You know, you, you can't cut something out and then hope that that's, that it's going to create a balance. It's, it's almost like that uh, that story when we were kids. You know, where the the I can't remember what it was, was it a fox or something that's trying to get reach a, reach a, grapes in a tree, and so the more the more it does in one side the more they need to compensate. So it's like, you know, I got to go higher, I got to get more grapes, more grapes, got to go higher. It was some kind of parable like that. I can't exactly remember how the story went. But, but bottom line is, you can't ever, you, you're, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul, and you keep on going back and forth, and it's not sustainable. And so the, the model of cutting an organ out or uh, reducing the function of an organ in order to allow another organ to function, it's just not sound. Medicine is not a sound philosophy in anything, whether it's in agriculture, it's in economy, it's in education, it's whatever. You can't do that. You, ha you can't rob Paul to pay Piper. And so that whole concept of changing um, and shifting based upon not understanding that balance is the key. It's almost like somebody who's searching for happiness is looking for the source of happiness from outside themselves, and they'll never find that happiness because they're not looking at the right place. Similarly, you can't achieve balance here because you're not looking at the right place for the balance. You're going from one end to the other end. You're vacillating between extremes. You'll never get to that balance. The balance is clean up the organ system, allow it to start functioning, and let it do it in concert with the rest of the organs the way the ultimate engineer created. I think that the uh, absurdity is rising to a whole new level here when we talk about, you know, for instance, not only removing glands, but... The whole vaccine thing. And I'm just thinking about this as we're talking, you know, looking at what Sayer G is writing and others that are pointing out about the fallacies of modern medicine. Now, you know, not discounting the good parts. We've acknowledged that. I don't need to say much about that anymore. But uh, the idea that injecting toxic poisons is somehow good medicine in an innocent, defenseless child that has no immune system except for what their mother provides to them, the vaccine issue. 
And uh, we're, we're almost up on a break, Dr. Batar, but there's another article on vaccines. It's hard, you know, it's hard to go a week without them because there's so much information coming out. The question is, are vaccines linked to increase in mast cell disease and allergies? Dr. Batar will have some things to say about that when we come back. And, of course, the consciousness shift that I sense greatly is occurring, that people, no matter how bad they're screaming at you for not vaccinating or not vaccinating enough, those people that are in the pro-vaccine fanatic scenario are looking more foolish by the day. And those who have woken up, hopefully not too late, are looking smarter by the day. More with Dr. Batar after this. The revolution will be broadcast. The Robert Scott Bell Show. The Robert Scott the Bell Robert Show. Scott Bell Show. Each and every week at this time. We are joined by my good friend, the co-host of the show, Dr. Rashid Batar. Check out drbatar.com or go to advancedmedicine.com, and the links are in the show notes at robertscottbell.com all the time. And you can enter the code if you want to be part of the private association to you know, get the healing up a notch or 10. It is uh, an invitation code for Robert Scott Bell Show listeners, 1358-1358. Dr. Batar, we are just talking about uh, the vaccine story uh, that's coming up here, and it's talking about, it's a little egg-heady and science but I know you're always up for that. Do vaccines impact an increase in mast cell disease, M-A-S-T, mast cell disease, and allergies? You know, it's, uh, it's interesting that the entire vaccine industry is based upon the fact that they want to elicit this immune response, and then they have these adjuvants that they call these reactants, things that are introduced into the body to exacerbate the immune response. With The entire ideology here is that if we can use the adjuvants to increase the immune response, we should have a greater antibody response and thus theoretically increase the uh, immunity in the individual for that particular disease process. Unfortunately, um, we know that if that was really the case, I mean, that is how it works, but unfortunately, when you use substances that suppress the immune system, i.e. toxic substances that have an immunosuppressive response, it's hard to use any amount of adjuvant to then stimulate that desired increase in immune response, because by definition, the other substances that you're using in there as preservatives, for example, such as thimerosal or other things, are actually acting as immunosuppressives. So you, it's like having a um, one of those rope contests where people are pulling on either side. So you're stimulating the immune system with these adjuvants, yet you're suppressing the immune system at the same time with immunosuppressives. And then you wonder why allergies increase. Because what is an immune response? Immune response is actually... Uh, a, a desired allergic response with creating an allergy is something that the body does not want. So that's what actually the immune response is. So when somebody gets bitten by an ant or a stung by a bee, that is an allergic response that they're experiencing, that swelling in the hives, etc. So mast cells are, are cells that are released um, in response to a histaminic-type reaction. Um, so there's, there's, a, there's a whole cascade of 
an immune reaction when there's an allergy, when there's an immune response. And mast cells, mm-hmm. um, the, the degranulation of some of the mast cells causes that inflammatory histaminic type response. And so without getting into too many details, which I probably have already gone into too many details, the point is that this study could be considered a moment of doubt because, no mm-hmm. kidding, of course, you're going what to increase the mast cells in certain disease processes or in certain conditions when you use vaccines because that's what you're doing. It's like, saying, no. um, you know, is, is, it, is it surprising that you see things getting burned when you light them on fire? Uh, you're yeah. them on Apparently fire, for uh, post-millennials it is because they're doing hot water challenges where they're pouring, pouring boiling water on each other. This is crazy stuff. Maybe, again, they're, they're disrupted uh, in their right minds because of vaccines as well. MCAS and autism spectrum disorder, they said over the past decade, a number of reports and studies have linked autism spectrum disorder with immune dysregulation and chronic inflammation in the body, including the brain. Well, no duh. And what do you think the immune system is responding to when they inject it with adjuvants to aggravate it? What did you think was going to happen, doctor? Hmm? Exactly. Exactly. So, so this, this, this is, again, either, either one, it's a fundamental lack of understanding, or it's just propaganda to just blame stupid. Either, either way, it's not justifiable and it's not excusable. Right. Folks, um, there's a lot more to vaccines than just this, this study or these series of studies, but we'll keep covering them from all of these angles. And remember, Dr. Batar, if you're, well, if you're new to the show and you haven't know about Dr. Batar, he wrote an amazing book, The Nine Steps to Keep the Doctor Away. It's written in many languages now, and it's a wonderful, wonderful resource that uh, will still keep given years from now as it has for many years. Now, I want to go into the uh, gut-liver-brain connection because they're tying it to Alzheimer's. And I know we only got about 30 seconds before our next break, but can you tease where we can go with the gut-liver-brain connection here? Well, the gut-liver-brain connection is seen with hormonal disruptions. You see this with not only Alzheimer's, but also with cancer, with, uh, with autism, very big in autism. But the second brain of the body is actually in the mesenteric plexus. That's what they call the second brain, which is in the intestines. So we can definitely talk about it, Robert. It's an important part. That's something close to your heart and mind both. Yes. I mean, they, you, know, you hear about gut-brain connection, right? That is very real. But when they leave out the liver, we feel a little sad. So we're not going to leave out the liver, and we're glad that they're acknowledging the role of the liver here. Very important. And Dr. Batar knows it, too. Advanced Medicine continues here on the Robert Scott Bell Show. Upcoming events in the show notes. Check it out. Cancer Prevention Connection. Convention, I shall say. August 19th. The Robert Scott Bell Show. In all my years of radio, I've never seen anything like this. The Robert Scott Bell Show. on bureaucrats and corporations that would stand in the way of health freedom. Here's Robert. All right, the sunroom studio has become the night room, evening room studio. As you can see, the window behind me, dark. Yes, it gets darker in uh, the southern part of the northern hemisphere earlier than the further north you are. That's just the way it works, folks. But uh, I'm ready for bed now, Dr. Batar, so you're just going to have to finish the show without me. That's fine, Robert. I'll do the best that I can. You're ready. No, I'm not leaving because I love the gut-liver-brain connection, especially because liver's in there. Yeah, absolutely. But the gut-liver and um, brain connection, we, everybody does, or not everybody, but a lot of people do talk about the gut and brain connection. 
you know, it's interesting when you even brought that up. I didn't mention the liver, but I don't know why. I don't usually talk about the liver independently because to me the gut and the liver are so intimately entwined mm-hmm. because as the blood, as the circulation picks up the nutrients from the gut, it also cycles through the liver. And if the liver is basically toxic, um, those nutrients end up getting, you, you don't have a, well, let me, it's like having two filters. And so basically, if one is not clean, if the liver's not clean, then your nutrition that you're picking up in the gut is not clean nutrition. And if the gut's not right and the liver's right, no matter how clean the liver is, as the blood circulates to the liver and it comes to the gut mm-hmm. to pick up the nutrition, it gets contaminated. So it's very important to have the gut and the liver both both uh, clean or optimized as detoxes as well as possible. In fact, the head map of all the different things that we're looking at, uh, Robert, you remember the head map, the acronym stands for Advanced Health Evaluation and Assessment for Detoxification Medical Assessment Program. That keyword is detoxification in there. So the head map is focused in on detoxifying. And of all the different organ systems, only two organ systems have multiple components that are being assessed. Gastrointestinal system, four different areas, and the liver, two different areas. Everything else is a single organ system being evaluated through the head map. But the liver and the gut are that crucial that they have multifactorial assessments to determine the various levels and, and determine the functioning of those various levels, um, not, not only the various levels of functioning, but various sub-organs or subsets of the, of the organ system, meaning mm-hmm. that, for example, in the gut, we're looking at the upper gastrointestinal system, we're looking at the lower gastrointestinal system, which is looking at the small bowel and the large bowel independently, then looking at the pancreas independently. So these are all subsets of that organ system of the gastrointestinal system. The liver and gut are very intimately entwined and critical to make sure that those two organ systems are working if you want to have any hope of, one, achieving optimal health, and two, to reversing any type of pathology. Yeah, when, when I hear gut, I, I, I long to hear liver, even though I know it's part of that system. So if you see a GI doctor, they also cover the liver. But I think the lack of emphasis on the liver in Western medicine uh, is you know, obviously a disservice, but of course it acknowledges that what they are trained to do, thanks to the Flexner Report of 1910, is to poison the liver with every medicine. As Sayer G. wrote about, you know, is modern medicine becoming basically a cult of human sacrifice? You know, there is no ailment that is evidence of a drug deficiency, right? And yet everything they do is to put poisons into the body. As you've said so many times so well, Dr. Batari, in modern medicine, if you need to use it, you use it fast and you get the patient off of it as fast as possible as well. It's crisis intervention. But the way it's promoted today is about every symptom for everything, every time, as long as you shall live. And that's the model of business for disease and its disease creation and then disease management. So the liver is taking the brunt of modern medicine ultimately outside of acute trauma intervention. Exactly. And for those people that may be listening to us thinking that, oh, and you know, um, you and I are being a little bit facetious and maybe a little bit uh, overly dramatic in our assessment of how drugs are being used, even Dr. Marsha Angel, who was mm-hmm. with the New England Journal of Medicine for over 20 years, I mean, two decades plus, 
history with, uh, I think he was the editor or chief editor of the New York Medicine, I don't remember. That's exactly. correct. That is correct. Yeah, so she was, okay, so she did, she wrote a book called The Truth About the Drug Company, and she's written a couple of books, apparently, but uh, that particular book really orchestrates well and, and delineates the truth behind those sentiments that Robert and I just expressed, because it really comes down to this machine that's been created, this marketing machine that's been created to convince people, and if convincing isn't enough, to make people dependent upon pharmaceuticals. And if that's not enough, then we cut out the thyroid and cut out the other organs of the system, the other, you know, organ systems, and then make people dependent upon the synthetic means of trying to maintain that normal physiology the way that God designed it to be. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, a, it's a massive problem, and it's a problem that has long been um, buried and, and not recognized, not addressed. But over the last five, ten years, Robert, I think there's been a tremendous amount of awareness. Um, just, just looking at the vaccine um, movement, just looking at uh, pure economy, uh, you see how natural food and whole food and organic food industry has just exploded, and um, you start looking at certain companies like Amazon, for example, that's trying to buy Whole Foods that did buy Whole Foods. You know, you can see that even companies like the, some of the pharmaceutical companies are buying up the pure encapsulations, the Douglas Labs, the various types of supplement manufacturers, because they see where the dollars are going. They see where the public is voting with their dollars. And mm-hmm. so that's very, very reassuring and um, puts a smile on my face because people are becoming more aware. Evidence of consciousness shift. We've been talking about it ever since we got on the air together, much less prior to us doing radio together, Dr. Batar. And, you know, there are things that, you know, if we look back at at the time where we were talking about the things we knew, the things we would like to see, and years later we're looking back and going, oh, my gosh, people are aware in ways that they were never aware before. And yet, you know, we're, we're seemingly not quenched by that because – for some reason, we're driven to reach the people that need to hear this message, and there are more and more every day. As you say about the gut, liver, and brain connection, what can we do to genuinely help rather than to just acknowledge, my gosh, there's a link, but what can people do to correct the dysfunction of those systems? Yeah, and there's a lot that can be done mm-hmm. to, to regulate and re-regulate or rebalance those systems and bring them in line. And that's, you know, all the things that we talk about, that's that's the whole purpose behind everything we talk about. The nutrition, yeah. the supplementation, the exercise, water consumption, abstinence, you know, the, in the book, The Nine Steps, that all those things were to help reestablish that proper balance and, that, and the connection. Exactly. Now, there's uh, fear associated um, with disease, but there's fear associated with survival as well, right? There's appropriate uh, uses for that term, fear, which I think mostly has been a negative connotation, but, you know, in many ways where people are inducing fear into you to control you, of course, it's not appropriate, and it can be harmful to you, where it can save your life from being eaten by a bear in the woods, okay, that's a survival instinct and mechanism. There's a distinction that we need to make here. Here's an article about fearing the day, not the day itself, but that it will be stressful, and the impact on memory, on focus, on productivity, It's like, at that point, what has gone wrong that people can't even go through the day without fearing it's going to be stressful? And how far are we off of survival if that's the fear we're living with every day? And, Robert, I think that we 
each have experienced, you and I, and as well as everybody listening, have experienced that that moment when you wake up in the morning and it's going to be like like you're anticipating this big move right now. Mm-hmm. And just the thought that you've got this overwhelming task of picking up your whole household and moving across the country, um, just that thought as you get up, it's a stressful thought. And even though you may not be consciously aware of that stress, it is creating a stress. And I think a little bit of stress is always a good thing, too. I, I perform better under stress, but it's not necessarily uh, something that you want to be experiencing on a, on a consistent and chronic basis. And that's the key. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, fear can be a survival mechanism, but it can also be something that drives you to do stupid things, right? E- even in a survival mechanism, if you're panicking, you're not, you're not always going to make the best choice. I mean, it's one thing. And, and it's like you're training. Uh, you know, you were in the Army. You, you've, you've trained for extremely stressful in, in situations and having levels of practice. Those of you who um, enjoy the, the Second Amendment, right, the right to keep and bear arms, it's like it's important to practice so that if you're ever in a situation where you need one, you, you know how to use it. And then you're not just struggling and doing the wrong thing. So uh, the preparation for environs that would normally cause you to maybe be a, a, a deer in the headlight versus immediately reacting in a way that will ensure your survival or those around you, it depends on a bit of preparation, I believe. I, I agree with you. I, I completely agree with you. The preparation is an important part of it. But just the anticipation of that day as you get up, um, of thinking about it, you know, no matter how much you're prepared, you're still going to have that slight, um, that slight anticipation, which could be construed as a stress. But again, as you said, stress isn't necessarily bad, and fear, if you harness it the right way, is, is actually the, it's a good type of stress to have because it, um, it prepares you. I mean, that, 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 that stress is actually getting your heart pumping faster, so it confuses the muscles. There's more blood being shunted to um, the musculoskeletal system, less being shunted to organs of digestion and such because, again, in the fight-fight response and that parasympathetic overload, you need to be prepared. So that's that part of that preparation, that, that mild stress that comes on is preparing your body, and that's a good thing because otherwise you, your, body wouldn't be, your body wouldn't be prepared right. for what to deal with. Yeah, you'd like to think that we're, we're all the best at dealing with stress. I guess that's something that's a challenge for us all, but stress is life itself. Now, we can determine whether a stress is negative or positive, I guess, based on maybe body physiology, but even you know the motion and movement is designed to do that, and you put yourself under stress through exercise if you don't work out in the fields every day, for instance, because you know at some level you have to or else this body will give out on you. So it's part of life itself to get out of here with no stress, uh, I, I think not being not realistic is an understatement. Yeah, but it's also not. It's not even a question of whether it's realistic or not. It's not beneficial mm. because then then you're not living life. You so I'm not saying to put yourself into extraordinary levels of stress like some people do and then cause pathology. I'm talking about like exercise is the perfect example that you brought up, Robert. It is a it is stressing your body, but it's stressing your body in a way that's beneficial for it, and the body responds to that and needs it. Yeah. All right, final story up for Advanced Medicine tonight. What can your poop tell you or others about the treatment for cancer? I would argue that they're probably not pooping enough, but we'll get to that with Dr. Batar. Advanced Medicine continues here on the Robert Scott Bell Show. Check it out, advancedmedicine.com, robertscottbell.com. All of the healing parties are happening here. 
Great heavens! What kind of radio show is this? The Robert Scott Bell Show. sense out of medical propaganda. Yep. Here's Robert. All right, welcome everybody listening on radio, our GCN, our home and broadcast radio syndication, uh, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, UK Health Radio, of course, advancedmedicine.com uh, as well for archives, a uh, special hour each week with Dr. Rasha Bittar. And Dr. Bittar, yes, uh, one of our viewers on YouTube said, I went over to Dr. Bittar's Facebook page and like, uh, but, uh, you know, Robert's uh, sound is much lower there. But, again, you know, I'm coming in through the air, so to speak, on that feed, right, where I've got you piped in through GCN, so we got broadcast quality sound. Both of our audios are should be equivalent. Uh, but, again, that's, you know, the technology. Um, Dr. Bittar needs a little help there. That's all right. We love him anyway. Yeah, I, I probably need a lot of help there. <laughs> but I'm just wondering whether I'm wondering whether it actually got better because I readjusted the phone and the mic to see if it's actually better because I'm trying to get it on a couple of different, you know, this is Jimmy rigging it. Um, low, low tech with high tech. I get it. Yes. No, I, I, yeah. I'm I don't complain. The, I'm check, I'm connecting the whatchamacallit to the Dumajagi. <laughs> yes, exactly. And speaking of the whatchamacallit, uh, how about the microbes in your poop? Could they be the uh, insight that um, oncologists are looking for to figure out what kind of chemo to give you? Well, I would argue that, you know, rather than looking for what kind of chemo, how about looking at the reason cancer manifested in your body in the first place? And that could have a lot to do with your microbiome if it's been upset and destroyed by drinking chlorinated water or artificial sweetened uh, uh, carbonated beverages and, and so many other things we talk about here. But there's an article here that said, could your gut microbes hinder your cancer treatment? A, first, uh, a new first in human trial investigates it. Now, without reading this totally, and Dr. Batar, I know you've read it cover to cover. Uh, could they be? Could they be arguing? Yes, yes. Could they be arguing that they're worried about you, the microbiome makeup that you have being resistant to their chemotherapy? Uh, Robert, I think this is more along the lines that you know, taking antioxidants is bad for cancer patients because it reduces the efficacy of the chemotherapy. I think this mm-hmm. is along those lines again. You know, after reading it cover to cover multiple times, I still am confused. Uh, okay, let's just be just, just <laughs> because sometimes people may not be really aware of our sense of humor or lack yes, thereof. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, I wouldn't. I wouldn't even pick that study up. And re- in fact, even even before I got to the end of the title, I would just move on mm-hmm. because it's just a waste of time to even look at something like that. But it, it, it's that thought process that oh, wait a second, nutrition or antioxidants or now in this case um, the microbiome could be detrimental to optimize it in patients with cancer. It just defies logic. The reason that people get cancer is because there is a disruption in the normal balance. There's a disruption where there's too much toxicity, there's not enough nutrition, there's not enough antioxidants, there's not enough vitamins, there's not enough minerals, there's, there's, there's a deficiency of nutrition, and there's an overabundance and over. Um, burden, I should say, a, a, a burden overload of toxicity. And it's usually one of the, or the other, usually the same, usually both components that then contribute to cancer. So anything that's looking at um, a subject matter that we would construe and, and parallel with 
optimum health, i.e. optimizing your gut, optimizing your mm-hmm. liver, optimizing your nutrition, optimizing your exercise, optimizing your water intake, etc. Relie- relie- relieving stress or reducing stress, uh, abstaining from vices, anything like this, when they start bringing it into the field of cancer and saying, hey, this could be the bad for cancer, mm-hmm. it just doesn't make any sense because that's how cancer started in the first place because of disruption of those balances. Exactly. And, and as I'm reading through this article, and a Super Don just laughs at us when we do this, but um, it, it does acknowledge the role of the microbiome in a positive sense that, you know, patients do much better when they have that, that whatever they define to be a balanced microbiome. And they're arguing for fecal transplants when, you know, we know that by eating good food, even raw or fermented food containing the enzymes and also the microbes that are good for us, uh, we don't need to do the other side, right? Fecal transplants per se. Uh, but they re- they're saying that the patients that have a better microbiome respond better. I think that's going to be true, uh, although it's not necessarily about countering uh, their chemo. Unfortunately, they still believe in that chemo as a, uh, you know, kind of a, a holy grail sense for them in terms of cancer treatment. But the fact that they're arguing that the microbiome plays a role, hey, that's some level of, 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 of progress here, good progress. I totally agree with you. I completely agree with you. It is some level and of progress, and and we celebrate that. It just means that we still have work to do and go forward. All right. Well, listen, we're we that was a fast uh, hour there with you, and two hours combined. Considering how exhausted I am, I made it through. I'm going to go to bed after the show pretty soon. So, Doctor Matar, thank you, my friend, for being with us as always. I thought you only did three segments. <laughs> no, it was the fourth honest it was. It was filled with good bacteria, too, and a happy liver. Hey, tell them what they need to know, because we got to go, Dr. Batar. The power to heal is unequivocally yours. Rockin'. The Robert Scott Bell Show. Robert Scott Bell Show.